Welcome to New Atlas Live. I'm Brian Berletic. Joining me today is Mark Sloboda. He is an international relations and security expert based in Moscow. He uh, formerly was in the U.S. Navy. Uh, Mark, I think you also uh, lecture as well, correct? Yes, I've lectured at uh, Moscow State University in international relations and international security. Okay, outstanding. And uh, today we are going to be talking all about Ukraine's on- much anticipated and now ongoing offensive, unless you believe some people who claim they're only probing uh, the defenses. And uh, I want to give a, a little disclaimer here. I bring Mark Sloboda on to talk. I want him to talk. And uh, it gives me a bit of a break. And it also allows my audience to see all of this from a, a different perspective And uh, without further ado, Mark, please, what is your take on this offensive now that we're entering, I would say, week three? Yeah, Brian, uh, thanks for having me on. It is a a very sincere honor and pleasure uh, whenever I'm on the new Atlas. Um, And uh, just a a full disclaimer, uh, my wife... Uh, as a birthday gift, uh, did actually buy me a old fashioned soapbox, uh, to, to, to stand on one year. Uh, and it, I, I actually should dig it out of the, uh, uh, the, uh, study, uh, and, and, and present it sometime. But, um, yeah, I, I, I tend to, to run at the, uh, at the, uh, glab. That's totally fine. Uh, please, please have at it. Although I would have to say that after the the last segment with Carl Jacques, Carl Jacques could 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 give you a run for your money. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he could run me into the ground, um, but that's okay. I did the first thing to him on the on the the, the first episode we did. Hmm. Okay, so we've got this. Finally, got this great Ballyhooed uh, summer offensive that uh, has started. Um, the active phase started now almost two weeks ago. Uh, in reality, it probably started a month, five weeks ago, uh, when, when you count in the preparatory phases. Um, it is probably the most hyped and forecast offensive in world history, right? They had a trailer for the offensive, right? Full Hollywood production. Look it up. I, 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 I am, you know. You're not uh, kidding. I've seen, I've seen it. Kidding. They, have a, they literally the have a Hollywood trailer for they, it. They had, it was actually, pre- I was impressed. I mean, other than the, you know, the weirdo Viking kind of earrings and symbology, kind of, kind of weird stuff. But yeah, it, it, it you know, it was, uh, it, it was, uh, an impressive bit of theatrics. And once again, if it was a matter of the information war in the English speaking Western, uh, information space, then, you know, they, they would have run over, they, they'd be in Vladivostok by now. Uh, but uh, unfortunately for them, uh, the information space is not reality. And it has to be said that even they've admitted that they're not winning the information war outside of the English language information space and the rest of the world capital r i.e the global south africa south america asia even the middle east uh they're not doing so well uh and and they admit that russia is winning and it's not so much that russia's winning the information war there it's that they're losing it 
because their hypocrisies and their double standards have caught up with them. Uh, and, and that's it. That's it's, it's not that Russia's doing such a genius job of presenting their part of the information more. Obviously, they, they, it, it is always an afterthought for Moscow, right? They, they, they are the, the, certainly the Ministry of Defense is not concerned about that in the slightest. They don't care what you think. Right. You out there listening now, they don't. Sorry, they're they're concerned with the battlefield and they, they make uh, no uh, ifs, ands or, or, or buts about it. Um, but with, with this offensive, first of all, it's important to note that although the intent, the attention of this of the, of the world to this offensive is is laser focused on the south uh on the Zaporozhia uh f- contact line uh and and the Removsky salient in in southern Donetsk right next door that actually uh the offensive is all over the front lines right it is happening pretty much everywhere where there is contact between uh Russian and Ukrainian forces with with the sole exception of course of uh the Dnieper River uh Kherson uh where there are still sporadic artillery duels and um uh uh it, it, it there was even another attempted probing amphibious crossing uh, just yesterday uh I believe that was stopped but that's you know small scale stuff but um and I think I'll most of what we'll talk about will probably be the Zaporozhia and Vremovsky salient front line, because that's what we know the most, the most about. But it, it's important to keep in mind that the fighting in Donetsk is just as hot, if not hotter, in, in, uh, much, uh, in most situations as it is. And, we're talking in the, the south in Avdeevka and Marienka. They've gone on the offensive there, trying to push back against recent Russian gains. The fighting is very hot in the flanks of Bakhmut. I would argue that marginally the Kiev regime forces have had a little more success there than than they have in the south. I, I, I'm not saying they've had success, but you know they they certainly have given a little more ground. And I believe the forces there are a little bit more evenly matched. Um, uh, also, in the uh, north of Bakhmut towards Solodar, uh, they're making a push in that direction. There is pretty much always been heavy fighting in the Kupansk and Liman forest area. No one ever talks about that. I mean, it's always been hot, uh, but it's especially hot right now. Um, and, uh, even, you know, with these games, uh, around Belgorod, uh, you know, in support of their, uh, neo-Nazi, uh, militias, this, uh, Russia, quote, volunteer corps led by what I like to call the Satanists of neo-Nazis. These are Russian neo-Nazis that are so flagrantly neo-Nazis that the New York Times even acknowledged it in a headline, uh, about them. And I've done some brief bios of them on, on my Twitter and Telegram. They're really nasty pieces of work. Denise Nikitin, Alexei Levkin, uh, you know, and, and, and the like that make out the quote unquote Russia volunteer corps and, and the Ru- free Russia legion. They are essentially a mockery 
of a, a neo a perverse neo-Nazi mockery of the DNR and LNR. Look, there's Russians on our side. And when they went across and they seized uh, three tiny little villages in Belgorod for a few hours, they even went through the propaganda effort of declaring their Belgorod neo-Nazi republic, right, as some kind of PR gesture and, and a and uh, a slander right at the DNR and LNR where millions of East Ukrainians have risen up since 2014 uh, and they've been fighting the Kiev regime all this time and it's actually only in the last year that Russia has belatedly intervened in the civil conflict and uh, Putin and and now even Botka Lukashenko if anyone cares what, what he thinks, have said that Russia should have gone in in 2014, 2015, which I think both you and I were saying <laughs> at the time. Um, yes. So, um, you know, uh, they've they've they finally uh, caught up, I think, and they've Putin has been disabused of his uh, latent Germanophilia and and his belief in, in European leaders. Uh, finally, at, at least hopefully he has. So, um, and the Kiev regime, in support of those neo-Nazis, they moved a number of uh, artillery battalions uh, right up in Kharkov region, close uh, to the Russian border. So they're getting heavy artillery assault. They were dropping 600 shells on the Belgorod region on nothing but small villages and hamlets, simply trying to denude it of all Russian civilians, of, of everything. Just the intention is is one, uh, PR, to distract from failures elsewhere, and uh, two, uh, to um, to try to make Russia divert resources uh, from, from the east, from the south, that could be better used there uh, towards that region. And it has to be said that Russia did not have this problem last year around this time. Because they still held large areas of Kharkov, close to Kharkov City. And now they're talking, oh, now we might have to go back in and create a sanitary zone, right, up up until Kharkov. Uh, and this is a consequence, one of the consequences of Russia not having enough manpower at the start of uh, uh, this intervention last year and being forced to withdraw from northern Kharkov from southern Kharkov, from Kherson, uh, and and you know that that is still paying out consequences. And right which, now, which which was actually something you had been saying at the time. I just want people to know that you you were right about that. You said that they needed more troops, and then eventually they did mobilize. Now I have a I have a question uh, before you continue. As far as you know, is is this Ukraine splitting up its offensive potential between Zaporozhia and also the, the Donbass region? Are they splitting up these forces that they were creating or is this something else? Because I, I wouldn't have figured that they had artillery to spare, especially for something like this, which is more propaganda than actual stri- strategic tactical or strategic purpose. Yeah, absolutely. To some degree. Right. I mean, th- there's no question about that. If they've moved artillery there specifically to shell villages in Belgorod, they could use that militarily to much greater effect in the south. But they have never been playing just a military game. For them, it's about uh, the Western information space, the flow of, of arms. And, and always 
you know, for both them and for the Pentagon thinkers, their big hope of winning this has always been creating panic in Russia, leading to, to civil unrest and Putin calling off the intervention. That has always been their biggest hope. It failed, of course, economically big time. They were counting on that hugely, like, like, um, you know, to, to use a Trumpism. Um, but, um, it was, it was their big ginormous hope. Uh, but, but quite obviously that didn't succeed. And everything they do with these stunts, this, uh, trying to knock the flagpole off the Kremlin, which they failed to do, uh, to, to these neo-Nazi attacks, to, to the attacks on the, uh, terrorist assassinations of Daria Dugana, uh, who I, I knew personally and, and considered a friend, uh, and Vladen Tatarsky, uh, this, that, that has all been directed at the Russian public, uh, to try to make them. And it, it's just amazing that, you know, I mean, even these, uh, these Banderites who took power in Kiev and, you know, the Western, uh, leaning, uh, Ukrainians who are in this unholy marriage with them. You think they would know the Russian people better after the hundreds of years, uh, that they have been, uh, together in, in, in the Romanov Empire and in, in the Soviet Union, but obviously not because the only thing they are doing is really increasing the ire, the anger of the Russian people. And, and if there is any sentiment dominant on the street in Russia, today. It's not, oh, this war is costing us so much. It's, why don't we hurry up and finish this already? Why don't we throw everything, right? Why Why is kid, why is Putin still playing this with kids gloves? We know we have more resources. Why aren't we using them? Why aren't we carpet bombing Kiev? I mean, that's, that's what Russians on the street are saying. I don't agree with that sentiment myself, but um, just just so you understand that that is not having the desired effect in the slightest. Uh, and and the Russian economy is doing just fine. I mean, unemployment is, is record lows. Um, uh, there's no shortage of consumer goods. It's amazing how quickly uh, goods from the rest of the world leapt in or copycat Russians. I mean, uh, the the the. Uh, Russian analog of, of McDonald's, right? McDonald's sold all of their stores, all of their locations, everything off to a Russian venture, um, who did some slight rebranding is using all the same original, you know, products and recipes that all the, the same garbage you would normally get at, at McDonald's. It's still available now. It's called, uh, Vukusna Itochka, which is, uh, just tasty. Um, and, um, they've added a few Russian friend, you know, Russian more taste items to the menu while leaving, you know, nothing off and they're booming. They're having better sales and better expansion now than McDonald's on its own ever did. They've got 58% of the share of the fast food market in Russia. And they're similar to, to all Western clothing brands, to Ikea clones, anyone, any company that hasn't come crawling back into the Russian market has been replaced either by, by foreign goods or by domestic clones that are doing just fine. And no one except for the Russians that were taking their vacations in Tuscany or Sicily really care. Um, and the rich might, 
but no one in Russia really cares what the rich think anyway. I mean, the oligarchs, I know rich, rich people in Russia are always still referred to as oligarchs, but they are not oligarchs in the sense of what existed in Russia in the 90s or what exists in the U.S. today with Bezos and Elon Musk and, and, um, uh, you know, uh, Zuckerberg and, and these other figures. Uh, they don't have any political power. Uh, they were allowed to keep their money as long as they stayed out of politics. That was Putin's social contract. Um, and, uh, it, it holds to today. Um, if an extremely rich person steps over the bounds, then they get their, they get their business empire taken away from them. That, that's the way it works here. Um, so the Russian economy is just fine. The ruble, um, it did not crash. Uh, it's had a few ups and downs, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's no really different than it has been in the last decade. Um, and trade with China and India and Saudi Arabia and Turkey and the UAE, they're all, they're all through the roof, right? They're, they're, they're all, uh, at percentages and, and, you know, it, 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 every quarter it seems there's, there's increased trade. So the, the great economic war failed, these political attempts of failing, and, and now they're resorted to this military gesture. And inevitably, there are comparisons between this offensive now, and I know they keep using this term counteroffensive. That's, that's political, right? Of course, it's incorrect usage of military terminology. Whatever Ukraine does, it's gotta be counter because Russia is the aggressor, we're told, not the, the kid regime that's been killing its own people for the last 10 years now. Um, but, um, this is, uh, you know, it, it's an offensive. I, I don't care what they say. Uh, so this offensive, um, there's so much wrong with it. First of all, Brian has has better, I think, than anyone gone painfully through uh, the hodgepodge uh, of different Western equipment uh, that it, these um, Ukrainian forces uh, are equipped with from a dozen different countries, uh, different tank systems, different infantry fighting vehicles, different APCs. The Challenger needs this kind of shell. Uh, the, the Leopards needs this kind of shell. Uh, and, and they really actually don't have so many, uh, a high number of, of top Western main battle tanks. Most of the battle tanks they've gotten are 1950s and 1960s or, uh, era. Uh, leopards or, or refurbished, um, uh, T-72s rebranded as Polish and, and, and these other things. Uh, so, um, it, 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 it's not so much. Uh, they've received very scant training. Supposedly NATO has altogether trained 60,000 troops for this. And, and for most of them, it was like two to two to four weeks, which is a joke. And, um, first of all, uh, this has actually been noted in their own military journals. Uh, we've got a problem in that even the training is not uniform. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, even for the same types of, of units, because NATO is not actually that uniform. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the difficulties of speaking to them in a foreign language for a short period of time. And you have to keep in mind that that NATO troops have never fought a war like this, not since World War II. 
they don't know what they're talking about. I, <laughs> I'm sorry, they don't, right? They may not know the theory, but they have nothing practical. Most of the Ukrainian officers come away from there saying, we know better than that from 10 years of killing our own people in the Donbass, right? That, that they know more practical. Finally, uh, the U.S. and others started some combined arms warfare training for them. Uh, but we've seen that they're obviously uh, weren't taught or didn't learn anything very effectively there. I know there's this belief that NATO training makes you unstoppable Superman or something like that. But as as both of us being ex-U.S. military who, who have been uh, – I, I know I've been on NATO operations before. I'm, I'm sure you have a, a pin there as well. Know that it's not all it's glorified up to be. And if you take a look at previous, you know, in recent history, foreign forces that have received NATO training – um, take a look at these NATO-trained supermen in the Afghani security forces that ran from the Taliban uh, hard, before almost any shots were filed. Or the Iraqi military, uh, which was pounded uh, by ISIS, right? Uh, and uh, Baghdad was under threat. Uh, before the Iranian-trained and led popular mobilization units entered the fray. And even the U.S. at the time was forced to admit that driving back ISIS on the ground. It was weird. It was um, uh, Iranian-led popular mobilization units on the ground and the U.S. Air Force in the air driving ISIS uh, out of uh, uh, the, the Baghdad area of Iraq, and 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 it worked, and and the U.S. at the time grudgingly admitted it. Then they went back to killing the Iranians, bombing those same those same units uh, uh, several a uh, couple years later. Uh, so uh, NATO training, uh, you know, it, it, it very limited utility. I, I think it's more political and show. Uh, then, then certainly we haven't seen anything demonstrated on the battlefield. I think other than the logistical issues of filtering all of NATO at this point, and it's more than just NATO now, because NATO's military stockpiles are tapped. So they've had to turn to the non-NATO members of the West, and they're now drawing on them for artillery shells, military vehicles, uh, and I'm talking South Korea, uh, who has already been contributing for some time, Japan now as well, and now they're talking Israel. They're talking about purchasing a couple hundred uh, Israeli tanks now because uh, they, they, they're they all out of any other options. So um, that's we're down to the non-NATO members of the West. Maybe that will be the fourth army. Uh, for Ukraine, maybe uh, in in half a year it will be a, a a smaller Ukrainian force equipped with South Korean, Japanese, and Israeli weapons that takes the battlefield for the next great offensive. Uh, I certainly hope not, but um, I I don't see any signs that that uh, diplomatic signs that it could in any way, shape, or form be resolved. One of the the most important things towards shaping this battlefield, particularly in the South, uh, other than the nine months of preparation. And even the New York Times and, and other 
uh, Western sources have actually done fairly good pieces um, at some point um, talking about the extensive Russian defensive fortifications that have been built all over the South and in the East, uh, you know, behind the Bakhmut lines as well. And we're talking trenches, um, uh, concrete fortifications, pillboxes, uh, bunkers, um, uh, minefields, more minefields, mazes that you can shake a stick at, which are proving extremely crippling uh, to the Kiev regime's forces, tank obstacles uh, and the like. Um, in echelon lines of defense in places five layers deep, where the first layer is absolute throwaway, and, and the second layer is another give layer, and actually it's the fourth layer that is the main line of defense. And all of the fighting that has occurred in the last two weeks in the south has been 10 kilometers yet ahead of the first Russian defensive line. This is all, I don't know if you want to call it a security zone, a screening zone, a gray zone, throwaway. It was Russian-held territory, but it was territory they said, yeah, this isn't really defendable. This is lowlands here, uh, you know, too close to the uh, Kiev regime lines. We're not going to try to form static defensive lines here. Uh, so... Uh, particularly with the Vremovsky salient and, and so much of, of what we've seen has happened in this. And this is a bulge in the Russian lines, uh, in southern Donetsk, right before southern Donetsk reaches, uh, uh, eastern Zaporozhye region. And it is an area of farmland. It is, it is Ukrainian steppe. Um, and some of it is pretty rural. Uh, the villages here are like 10, 12, I think one of the biggest is 50 houses. They've all long since been evacuated. There's no civilians there. Um, it is, a, a lot of these settlements are connected by dirt roads. They're not conducive to supply lines, right? It rains and those dirt roads uh, suddenly become obstacles, even for Russia, right? much less the Kiev regime, which is why they didn't try to, to build extensive defense fortifications. So most of the fighting has been happening in this throwaway zone, uh, you know, particularly in the Vremovsky salient. And Russia's not fighting a static defense in most of this area. They're fighting uh, what you can call a screening defense. They've got small squ mechanized squads, right, that are running around in mechanized vehicles with uh, Cornet anti-tank guided missiles and some other armaments, um, and they're staying hidden. They're taking an occasional shot with their, you know, uh, anti-tank or, or other weapons when they've got a good opportunity, and then they get out of dodge. They run and they hide again. Their primary is to keep tracks on the Kiev regime as their forces head across this flat, open territory and try to navigate their way through the maze of mines that have been laid here. Um, and then to call in their locations to uh, Russian artillery, Russian rocket systems, Russian airstrikes, um, and Russian drones. And, and 
that is what the majority of the fighting, most of the, the fighting, most of these Kiev regime units that you've all seen the pictures of the Leopards and the Bradleys and the Strikers, you know, in wreckage burning on the step, they never saw the enemy. They never saw Russians. They were wiped out far ahead of that. And it's proving very crossly. Uh, and even the New York Times in a piece today, uh, Kramer, Eric Kramer was talking about how the Russian tactics are proving extremely uh, a high degree of attrition on the Kiev regime forces. And this is just screening defense. This is not the heavy static defense that lies to the south, which each successive defensive layer more packed with Russian troops, with more Russian artillery, with more rocket systems. And we've seen the effectiveness of these Russian weapons. And the other big, I would say, battlefield you know, uh, uh, element that has shaped this battlefield, other than all the preparation that Russia did, is what occurred in the two or three weeks prior to the Kiev regime's active phase, when the Kiev regime moved up their air defense to near the front line to, in an attempt to shield their staging points and their units that were gathering there, and Russia systemically hunted them all down. They no longer exist. They were calling it at the time on the Telegram channels the S-300 genocide. Uh, and it wasn't just S-300s. They also hit um, uh, German Iris. They hit Buchs. They hit any type of air defense that the Kiev regime had. And they were very thorough. And that is why you are now, for the first time in this conflict seeing Russian air power uh, just going all out. They're going whole hog. The, the KA-52 alligator helicopter gunships are, you know, with they've got about an 8, 10-kilometer range uh, with the missiles they're firing. They are devastating entire convoys of the uh, Kiev regime forces uh, as they're attempting to move through this step, being very effective. Um, and the reason why they're traveling in convoys, by the way, uh, and, and we've seen this again and again and again, is because they're, they have to move through minefields. And they're trying to do it quickly, or at least they were during these first two weeks. And so they've got an entire uh, convoy of equipment with one or two mine removing vehicles out in front. They don't have very many of them. Most of them that they have now are ones provided by the West. Um, and uh, everything else just has to trundle along behind them. And, and I mean, you can imagine what this is, right? Uh, the, 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 the Russian um, uh, screening forces, they identify the convoy moving forward, or the drones do, everyone's seeing them, right? They pick an ambush spot, they take out the mine, demining vehicle in the front, uh, they take out the vehicle in the back, and then it's a turkey shoot. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, when they try to scatter, uh, you know, as they're being gunned down by, by artillery and, and, uh, uh, alligator gunships, they, uh, are running onto mines. And actually that has been from everything I can tell, uh, you know, the, the KA 52 has done their damage. The artillery has been doing their damage, um, the um, Lancet, they've got a new improved Lancet with an armor-penetrating warhead. It's re reaping lots of kills, 
but mines have killed more of this equipment, disabled it, destroyed it, whatever. It doesn't make any difference when it's on the battlefield than anything else. And it's actually become a bit of mine warfare going on. Uh, this is, uh, you know, far more prevalent on the Russian side. They set up these uh, uh, minefields in, in mazes, and evidently some of them Kiev regime didn't know anything about, uh, particularly in the Vremovsky salient area, which is why they ran on to so many of them. Um, but they've also got remote mine-laying uh, systems that they are like rocket systems, right? They're like, they look a lot like a grad or a tornado or, or the like. They fire... Uh, uh, they disperse mines similar to, you want to say, cluster munitions, although more substantial over uh, an area. And they are able to remotely mine areas uh, with them. Uh, uh, the, the system is actually called the agriculture. That's the translation, like they're sowing fields. Um, so um, what they're doing is often they're, they're letting the, these convoys move through a minefield up to a certain area, and then they're mining behind them. <laughs> and then they attack them. And then the carnage begins. Um, and um, they'll mine. After they've mined an area, they'll demine again. That uh, they'll, they'll mine that area remotely again. The Kiev regime has gotten in on the act, and they tried to use their equivalents, their more cluster munitions than they are actual mines, uh, but fired by HIMARS, uh, and they tried to hit the supply lines where Russia was getting supplies to these screening units. Uh, I haven't seen that it's been terribly effective, but at least it's smarter thinking than throwing more meat at the minefields and, and the walls of Russian defense. Uh, so there's a mine war going on right now, and, and it cannot be underestimated, uh, or, or to use another Trumpism, misunderestimated, uh, how much uh, damage that that you're seeing being done is done by mines and how formidable that is because already they have lost i would say probably 50% total of the mine removing equipment that they were supplied with by the west in particular there was a, a special modified leopard chassis uh that has a a, a breaching unit in the front uh, these were provided uh, by Finland, and in one small area, one snapshot of the front, we saw three out of the six provided in smoking wreckage on the field. And there was even a fourth uh, that was a Bradley uh, with a demining uh, unit attached to it as well. And right now, uh, uh, there are uh, NATO is expediting new demining equipment. Uh, be, delivered uh, to the Kiev regime to make up, try to make up for what they've already lost. Um, and they've been trying to move sapper units forward, but of course they're being hit by uh, Russian air, by, by Russian artillery, and they don't appear you know, to have the equipment that they need to deal with this. And these minefields go on and on, right? Um there's no way that NATO can provide them with enough equipment to demine this. They don't have enough skilled troops. They don't have enough equipment. This is why, at this point, a fatalist and cynic that I usually am, I'm extremely um, uh, 
bullish on the Russian defense at this point. I think that even when they gather together their largest forces and throw a couple hundred tanks at a time at the defense lines, that they're not going to be able to punch through more than, say, the second, maybe the third line of Russian defense. They're not going to penetrate it anywhere because they simply don't have between the minefields and the Russian now total air superiority over the battlefield, the artillery mismatch. Um, they're, they're just being ripped apart. And I don't see that they're demonstrating that they have the ability to perform large offensive operations at this point. That's why they're doing this small company size, uh, you know, uh, uh, operations uh, for the most part, despite uh, all the NATO uh, training that they've had. Mark, what do you make of the United States sending, say, 15 more Bradleys or 10 more strikers? I don't, I don't understand this at all, to be honest, because when you, when you allocate 15 Bradleys, 10 strikers, there's a whole process that they have to go through to get that to the front line. Unless they set it up to begin with like this, where there's a, a pool of these vehicles, say in Poland, and they're just piecemeal throwing them in because they don't want them to be staged somewhere in Ukraine where they could be destroyed. What do you, what yeah, do you make of that? Is that I, I think that's, that's what we're looking at this sign? point. I think is that, that's is that what a we're good looking sign? At. Is it a it's good not sign a good that they're it's sending as a good after bad. It is not a solution. It is not a winning strategy. It is desperation. They've got nothing else. That this week they announced you see all of these. Uh they're now they're talking sending cluster munitions. Now the US wants to send depleted uranium uh ammunition, uh tank shells. Uh it why? The Abrams aren't even on the battlefield yet. As far as we know, the Abrams won't be on the battlefield for another six months or more, if ever. And there's, I hate to tell you, there's, how many times have you seen a tank-on-tank battle in this offensive? Or, not or, often. Not often. No, they're being destroyed far, right, uh, from, uh, you know, where Russian defenses are with tanks by uh, uh, helicopters and mines and, and, uh, artillery and the like. It's just spite. It's desperation. What more do we have to say that we're giving them something? Um, I don't see a winning strategy here. Uh, uh they can throw, I am confident. I mean, the U.S. has lots of Bradleys and strikers to throw away. I mean, let, let's be honest about that. But we've also received word that a lot of these stored vehicles, um, first of all, it's already become clear to the Ukrainians that all of these, they don't have a lot of Western main battle tanks. The one thing they have a lot of is Western, quote-unquote, armored uh, infantry fighting vehicles and APCs, right? They're, they're, they're flooded with them. They got a, a thousand of them and more, right? And they're sending replacements now for everything they're losing. And NATO has just become a complete logistics arm uh, in Poland uh, for the Kiev regime at this point. Uh, but uh, first of all, they're proving not very good for the environment. These these things were designed for uh, desert conditions and urban combat, and the Ukrainians are already saying that the slightest bit of rain and, and, and they're breaking down. We've seen Canadian vehicles breaking down before they even reach, uh, you know, uh, the, the line of contact. Um, 
they're they're not able to deal with even the slightest amount of weather and and that's in the summer right uh and despite having an immense supposedly warehouse numbers of these vehicles we've also seen reports quietly in the western media admitting that actually a lot of these uh vehicles that were intended to be sent to ukraine were in very very bad condition even though stationed in the middle east a lot of these infantry fighting vehicles and apcs they went to send them and they discovered oh we haven't been keeping up on the maintenance on them and uh actually they hundreds of them needed repairs uh, they were cannibalizing others in order to be able to send uh you know how many they were supposed to uh to the ukraine so even the enormous supposed on paper stockpiles of of bradleys and strikers and and everything that that the us has uh on paper uh may may not in reality be uh as much as all of that they're having a lot of problems with it and all these mechanized forces in the world aren't going to do a lick of good against the combination of russian minefields russian static defenses that haven't even been reached yet russian artillery uh they're, they're just uh, being made minced meat and look the whole game now for them the manpower to manpower particularly on the southern front here is at least one to one and i've seen some suggestions by some analysts uh including uh for instance weeb union uh that russia may actually have uh, uh uh another half again as many troops as the kiev regime has for this this offensive in defense that's huge right and and you're the attacker and russia has air superiority and artillery dominance and uh, uh you've got less men now why are they doing this i mean uh, i think at some level there was actually a belief that russian forces this was their great hope the russian forces are can't fight uh and that they would all just run away the, the the first sign of of ukrainian forces with their uh azov flags and their wehrmacht uh balkan crews uh, symbols on their leopard tanks and that russians would just throw away their weapons and and maybe that was deliberately fostered uh over the last half a year by by russia intentionally right playing up that wagner is you know okay they can fight but the rest of the russian military can't which was always nonsense um but um i i think there was a real belief about this and and maybe that was something that they were counting on and they've been sorely sorely abused of that notion uh in the last last couple of weeks uh so so that's that's not going to go anywhere for them I, they always one of one of the tropes of western military analysis of is that the Kiev regime they were sorry the ukrainian forces as they call them they all have oh they're all heroic volunteers they have super high morale and motivation and the ukraine and the russians are all uh forced conscripts uh that you know uh, don't don't have any training and don't have any fight and don't want to be there and it is largely the polar opposite situation right the ukrainian telegram channels 
are full now, constantly, of the videos showing Ukrainian citizens being not just forcibly conscripted, but literally beaten into unconsciousness and press ganged on the street on a continual basis <coughs> Excuse me, to keep up the meat for this meat grinder. It's happening right now in the ever-increasing speed. Meanwhile, the, the Russian reservists that were called up, they were all reservists. They all had prior military experience. That was 300,000. It was announced at the time of the, that call up that another 80,000 volunteers joined then. Plus, Putin has just revealed, uh, in the past week, um, uh, in a, a speech, he, he, well, not a speech, he gave a sit down talk to Russia's, uh, war correspondents and, and, uh, war bloggers, as they're called on the Telegram channels. Uh, a couple dozen of them. He sat down and had a long back and forth conversation with them. One of the things that he revealed is that, uh, through, uh, Russia, Russia has done a big military recruitment campaign in Russia. They're offering very, com- very high salaries, uh, for, for Russia, even pretty, pretty good for the U.S., uh, for, uh, troops right now, benefits packages, um, and, um, they're doing a lot of, of commercials, which I, I have to say are a lot more effective than the woke commercials that the U.S. military is using to, to try and promote itself and experiencing a huge recruitment problem right now. Uh, in the U.S. So they have successfully recruited uh, just in the last few months uh, si- since the recruitment was, was uh, since the um, reservist call up in the autumn, 150,000 new um, uh, contract uh, troops, right? Uh, most of them who have already served, right? Uh, and, you know, of course, will receive more training. Uh, and another 6,000 volunteers, which I take it those are the new territorial defense that are being set up in Belgorod and other areas. And this partly assuages my fear that Russia has not done another mobilization yet, which I have always been concerned about it. I'm sure I mentioned it last time I was on your show. Um, and Putin actually said right then, uh, our plan right now is not to march on Kiev. If we're going to march on Kiev, then we are going to need another mobilization. Uh, so he's laying that right out there. Uh, he's it, it's a a, a threat, uh, you know, with with a very punctuated one to the west. It is a very pointed message, I believe. Uh, but uh, right now, um, remember that Russia has initiated stop loss which whether you are signing a contract or you are, um, uh, you know, have been called up as a reservist, you don't get out now. You're in the conflict to the end. And when you start adding up the numbers then of what Russia has available for the still-called special military operation, we're pushing 800,000 now. Uh, all total, right? Uh, minus some losses. Let, let's let's be conservative and say seven hundred thousand, uh, most of which have not been used yet. 
Uh, a lot of them are waiting behind these defensive lines uh, in the South, in the East, and it seems almost certain. I can't imagine why once this counteroffensive, or sorry, this offensive, they've even got me doing it now, uh, is exhausted that Russia will not launch their own offensive, uh, you know, uh, in reply, or their own properly used counteroffensive uh, to, to exploit this situation. Uh, so um, right now uh, it appears that uh, Wagner and uh, the, um, uh, the Chechen uh, Kadyrovites, the, the National Guard, are being sent to Belgorod. They'll be moving into the, the Kharkov region. Obviously, that is not a force intended to take Kharkov, the city, which would require, I don't know, 300,000, Brian, 300,000 to take Kharkov, a, a city, a million, uh, you know, the second largest city uh, in Ukraine, right? But uh, obviously, including those two urban assault specialist forces, they plan on taking another, a number of settlements in Kharkov uh, up to, to Harkov City itself, uh, so um, uh, they, they plan on going on on the offensive there. And nowhere in two weeks has the Kiev regime made any substantial progress on the ground. Four hamlets in the Vremovsky salient, one of, leech, of which at least is completely gray zoned, right? Uh, they uh, um, and. Uh, this was throwaway land to begin with. Russia has the highlands in the Vremovsky salient. All of their trenches, all of their defensive lines past this, on top of all of the defenses and everything, there's the terrain. And Russia built all of these defensive lines to take advantage of the local high ground in the territory uh, to create, you know, specific firing positions, fire bags, uh, you know, kill zones that the Kiev regime forces will need to move through. Um, the whole game becomes with this uh, manpower mismatch is that Russia still has to defend large areas of territory where the Kiev regime's goal, uh, right now they're attacking in multiple places with a, a large reserve behind. At some point, they will try a big push. And they will try at the last minute so to provide as little time for Russia to react. They will push hard with with everything that they can, all that, that, that they can muster in one direction, so that locally they can increase the percentage of manpower in their favor. Um, the problem, of course, with that is that Russia has... Excellent satellite data, excellent signals intelligence, still plenty of human intelligence infiltrating, uh, you know, the uh, Kiev regime, the Ukrainian military uh, and the like. So this will be very, very hard for them to do. We'll see. Um, we know that Russia has now started taking out decision makers. Um, Zaluzhny and Kirilo Budanov, that genocidal maniac. And, and Zaluzhny was a clear banderite, right? He's got two busts of Stepan Bandera in his office and a poster because one isn't enough. Uh, and he did a, a photo shoot, uh, you know, uh, uh, at, at the beginning of the year where the, uh, uh Kiev regime's uh, Rada, they, they posted a picture of Zaluzhny 
posing in front of a picture of Stepan Benzera, right? So, Vanderite. Um, the BBC just did a hagiographic, uh, wonderful puff piece playing up Zeluzhny and how important he is for Ukraine. And at the very bottom of the article, they mentioned, we reached out to uh, Valery Zeluzhny, to the Ukrainian, you know, top general, uh, uh, to, you know, uh, uh, for this article. Uh, but uh, uh, he uh, declined uh, to, to comment. Why did he decline to comment? Uh, well, I, I have one thing to ask the BBC. Did you try to use a Ouija board uh, in your attempt to communicate with Zeluzhny? Um, uh, or, or at least a psychic of some point if he's still in a coma. Uh, and we've heard uh, via Russian uh, Russian intelligence uh, reported on RIA Novosti uh, through Ukrainian intelligence uh, that Kirill Budanov, this genocidal maniac who wants to kill Russians anywhere and everywhere in the world, uh, not not Russian military, not Russian politicians, right? Russians. Uh, this he guy's, said that too. Mark's not yeah, making this up. He really said this. This is from a country where 20% of the population is ethnic Russians. Is Russian. Uh, well, um, so the word is now that he was... Uh, severely injured in uh, Russian airstrikes uh, at the end of May on the GUR headquarters in Kiev. Um, uh, evidently, the the uh, missile strike went through the window of the uh, bill of the um, uh, office next to his. His, of course, didn't have windows because I guess they weren't that dumb. Uh, but um, and he is now. He was supposedly then. Uh, medevaced in serious condition to Poland, uh, and then to a hospital in Berlin where reportedly, uh, he is in, in very poor condition. And you maybe have seen this obviously AI generated bizarre video they did with Budanov as some kind of wait, there's a plan. Things aren't as bad with the offensive where he just stared at the camera. For what I don't know, thirty seconds, just bizarrely, and um, and then once or maybe twice he blinked very. I saw that very exaggeratedly. I mean, it was such artificial, obviously artificial intelligence. Didn't say anything the whole time, and then the tagline at the end was "Plans love silence," you know, in in Ukrainian. Uh, but it, it it seems I I am now confident that, that if Ria Novosti has announced it, that that's the real situation. And uh, as new leaders uh, of the Kiev regime's military and intelligence emerge, if they prove as toxic as these two have been, they will be targeted too. Um, so uh, that is that is payback from the guy who was quite proud of assassinating uh, civilians Daria Dugan and Vladen Tatarsky uh, in in uh, Russia inside Russia's borders. So um, I, I still don't have any positive feelings about the end of this conflict. I don't see an end game. I don't see an off ramp. Uh, it, it appears that even as the situation gets desperate, that not only Biden but European countries are doubling down as much as they can as well digging up everything, trying to replace everything that the Kiev regime is losing, 
We've got this big NATO meeting coming up, I believe on the 21st of June, in just a few days. And it doesn't look like, at least for the moment, that Kiev is going to have anything even remotely positive. I'm sure they're going to try to make some big push here this weekend. One of the problems they've had is that last weekend and early into this week, it was raining in Zaporozhye. That in it, it, it did two things. For the Ukrainians, it inhibited any big mechanized armor push, right? These big Western uh, main battle tanks, 60 tons uh, on, uh, you know, Ukrainian dirt roads, uh, you know, uh, in, in rain and mud. No, th- th- obviously that wasn't going to work. Uh, but it also inhibits Russian drones and, and airstrikes. So we saw that's when they made this more successful, if you want to say it, push with infantry uh, that managed to achieve some level of surprise and take these these three and a half uh, uh, homesteads uh, on, uh, on the, the Ukrainian steppe in, in the Removsky salient. But the weather has been dry now for several days. It's going to be dry through this weekend. And there's probably going to be a big push this weekend so that they have something uh, to show for this NATO summit uh, because it's always, they're, they're always more concerned with political results than any military sense in the battlefield. It's been a clear pattern of theirs throughout this entire conflict. Uh, but, um, in, in, you know, the short term, I do not see where this offensive at this point can achieve any of the goals that they set out for it. Not severing the land bridge, not taking Melitopol. I don't even see them taking Tokmak um, uh, at this point. I, they'll maybe at some point manage to push through, reach and push through one or two of the Russian defensive lines, but I don't see any more than this. Uh, we've still got these games around the Kohovka Reservoir. Uh, it is more and more obvious to me that they... Uh, blew up the dam in an attempt to drain the reservoir so that they don't need to conduct an amphibious assault uh, on Energodar and the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. The question is, how the, the, the Kovka reservoir are now mud flats. How quickly and to what degree is that mud drying, right? Uh, most Russian experts seem to think that it is going to be impossible to move any mechanized or armored force uh, across the reservoir. However, I believe there's still the hope that if they manage to punch through at the edge of the Kohovka Reservoir on, on the western end of Zaporozhye, they've been increasing their attacks on that end of the line there. If they manage to punch through there and uh, pivot uh, to the west sharply, cutting uh, towards the Nergadar, around the reservoir, and then maybe do an infantry assault on foot, possibly even, or very light vehicles across these mud flats of the reservoir, that that might then enable them to take Nergadar and the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. I am no longer afraid of this scenario. Uh, it is, it doesn't look like it's working out for them. They haven't they intended to have already pushed around uh, the Kohovka Reservoir uh, at this point. They haven't succeeded. They haven't. Uh, it, 
in to time we're going, you know, to to uh, live here. They haven't had any success uh, uh, in that direction, uh, and uh, they're way behind time schedule on that. And I'm sure that Russia is well prepared. They're aware of why the Kiev regime blew up the dam and what they're trying to do there. Uh, but I don't think that that if this was their great plan, uh, I don't see it working out for them. Brian, what do, what do you think? Well, I mean, it's a good question. I, I was actually it's, it's amazing. I had all these points that I was going to ask you. and You've literally addressed every single one of them almost in the exact same order. Uh, the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. Great what minds. if you can Great minds, <laughs> What if what if they take the nuclear power plant? I mean, is this going to have a huge uh, benefit for Ukraine, or is this another Snake Island moment where it, it's been built up? You know, I remember them saying Snake Island was the key to controlling the Black Sea. I, obviously not. But, uh, is, what if they do take this nuclear power plant and, and then what? And you're, you're skeptical about them achieving the, the objectives of this offensive, whatever they actually really are. I'm also skeptical, but I, I also have, thought about what, okay, what if they reach the sea? What if they take back Bakhmut and, and then what? What, where are they getting another army? Because we see them right before our eyes spend. Israel, <laughs> Israel, Mer- Merkava <laughs> tanks, which, uh, Hezbollah already proved to the world. These are not invincible tanks any more so than the Leopard 2s or the M1 Abrams burning in heaps in Yemen used by Saudi troops. Um, so what do you think about that? And then I also wanted to ask you about uh, we the, the, Ukraine has stood up these brigades. They're not really able to organize these brigades all, all together for one type of operation. They've got them broken down into companies, uh, operating pretty kind of independently. And this goes back to that U.S. Army paper that I've covered many times about trying to fight the Russian battalion tactical group and having small groups working independently. They they need Russia's to not push fighting with, in battalion tactical. Yeah, not anymore. Yes, They're fighting in anymore. divisions again now. So so it's uh, and and you were just talking about them needing to to make some sort of gains for this uh, NATO summit. So it, it almost seems as if the I'm, they're looking at their force. They're looking at everything that they have. There's no way to launch a, a sensible, rational offensive. So they're just doing whatever they can with whatever they have. And uh, the losses are, are already catastrophic and they will continue to be catastrophic. So, uh, where, so what do you think? So the nuclear power plant, what if they get that? Um, this, this problem, you know, the, the whole concept of them launching this offensive when they really, they don't have what they needed to, to launch an offensive. No air cover. Their air defense is diminished significantly. Their artillery is diminished and they're using their artillery, uh, for, for other things elsewhere in the, along the front line. They have like 230 tanks given to them by, by the West ahead of this offensive. A large number of them are destroyed. I mean, where, what do you make of all of this? Uh, start with the nuclear power plant. Okay, so here's what I'm afraid their intention is with the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, which is why I've always been so afraid about this. They get a hold of it, and there is suddenly a nuclear accident, which they blame on Russia, and the entirety of the Western media immediately says, yeah, Russia did it, because you know Russia's been 
blowing up their own pipelines and then uh, blowing up their, their their own dams that they control and, and attacking their own Kremlin and blowing up the Crimean Bridge. And the pro-Russians have been killing themselves in East Ukraine for the last 10 years. Why do they keep doing that? It must be a pro-Russian thing, right? I mean, that's that's the evil, the evil, the vileness of Western journalists, that they repeat this and they don't care. Because as far as they're concerned, the the pro-Russian people, right, the, the ethnic Russians, the Russian-speaking, the pro-Russian people of East Ukraine are not human to them. They're not deserving of human rights. The people that are my family, my wife, my family in Crimea and Donetsk and uh, Kharkov and Odessa, their continued existence is geopolitically inconvenient for the West and Western journalists are fully on board with them. As far as they are concerned, all of these people are brainwashed and only if they are enlightened to true Western values, then everything will be okay. That's that's the way they view it. And if large numbers of them have to be killed or driven into Russia in the process, and remember, there are five million Ukrainians living in Russia. And I'm not talking about the new regions. I'm talking about five million Ukrainians, including at least three million refugees that are in Russia. Uh, more refugees fled to Russia from Ukraine than any single European country. Poland comes in a distant second. Something that they won't tell you in the Western media, but the UN statistics, uh, you know, have have reported on. Uh, so they're telling you that that my family aren't really people. They don't care about their lives, their political rights, their social values. Uh, they don't matter. Um, I'm afraid that they will get a hold of the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. Uh, they will stage an incident. It will be. They create a nuclear incident, whether it's the equivalent of a dirty bomb or something more serious, and then they will scream nuclear accident caused by Russia. This conflict needs to stop now. They will attempt to internationalize the situation. There will be a propaganda effort like we have not seen so far. They will be screaming from every podium every newspaper, every television channel, every office in the UN that they have uh, subverted, uh, and it will be an attempt to end the conflict that way, by internationally enforcing it. Uh, a, a dirty trick, if you will. Uh, but uh, I think there has always been that possibility. They fired on the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant for months Right. In an attempt to do that, they were playing around trying to do something with Chernobyl. Uh, Russia has reported how, uh, you know, they've uh, been preparing dirty bomb incidents uh, uh, and uh, Russia uh, has stopped several uh, of them in the early planning stage by precision strikes behind the lines. And by the way, precision strikes behind the lines, um, it, it, speaking back to the offensive just briefly. Russia's continuing precision strikes with uh, cruise missiles, with, with even some ballistic missiles, with drones, every 
single night for the last six weeks now has done such damage for this offensive behind the lines at, at uh, arms and ammo depots, fuel depots, uh, uh, decision, you know, command and control centers, enormous damage, which tells me that this is not sustainable for them with the losses they're taking for more three or four weeks. That's, that's it. They, there's no way that, that NATO can keep up the supply with how much Russia is taking out every night. You do not hear about it in the Western media because the Kiev regime has made reporting, posting any pics about these strikes a crime and they disappeared dozens of people, ordinary people. Uh, and, and they've, I mean, they're not hiding it, uh, right? And the Western media even quietly reported on it a bit with, with obvious approval, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so, um, the, you don't hear about it, but that is doing enormous damage every day. And I'm, I'm amazed, right? I mean, I knew that Russia wasn't running out of missiles, that they were continually producing more. We talked about this last summer, right? About, uh, how you and I both saw evidence that Russian missile and drone production was up and running on its own. But now their production numbers, they obviously feel comfortable throwing stuff away at this point, right? I mean, taking out low-value targets um, uh, comparatively, right? And they're able to keep it up every single night, sometimes during the day. Uh, so that's another factor going into this. And Kiev regime has maybe 5% of that capacity in return. All right, yeah, they took out one general this week with a behind-the-lines HIMARS strike this week. I did see uh, a number of, of, of troops that also got killed in one location that might have actually been the same uh, occasion. Uh, but that is a tiny fraction of what the Kiev regime is, is suffering every night. And Russian air defenses and electronic warfare, man, I, I hope the... the other countries of the world's military are paying attention to how well they are performing. 11 drones were fired at Crimea two nights ago, and 11 of them were brought down through a combination of air defense and electronic warfare. I mean, they'll, they'll occasionally always get something through. They'll, they'll fire in a location where air defense or EW is light, or they'll, they, you know, they'll, they'll manage to throw enough at once that one gets through. You know, they've constantly got these uh, U.S. reconnaissance, uh, U.S. and NATO reconnaissance flights over the Black Sea uh, that are constantly flying back and forth every day, collecting data on Crimea, on the front, everything. As far as I'm concerned, Russia really needs to, to extend their their exclusive zone in the Black Sea and start knocking more U.S. drones out of the air. Uh, uh, when they're doing this, because that's active participation in the, in the conflict. And, and, um, uh, it is, it is, uh, they, and if they put up air, uh, you know, if they put up, uh, the, the French immediately after that incident sent a reconnaissance flight with two jets out of Romania accompanying it, then you meet them head on in the air and you harass them, you target lock them, whatever is necessary to drive them away. Uh, and you let know that if they continue to fly in this new exclusivity zone, then they will be fired on. 
because they are active participants in the conflict. Uh, that's my opinion. We'll, we'll, we'll see what Russia, you know, does in that way. But that's my fear about the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant is that, that their intention is in, in, in a nuclear incident and an internationalization and a propaganda effort to try to pillory Russia and get them to stop because they know they can't win it. Right. So how do they freeze it? How do they stop it? That is one such example. Weapons of mass destruction, nuclear incidents. It's such an old canard, but it works. Right. It creates this emergency situation where the, the not acceptable becomes the acceptable in political terms. Uh, so yes. that's that's my big fear about the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. I'm sure that Russia is aware of this, and I'm confident. I'm confident that they have the defensive forces to prevent this from happening. But the Kiev regime could make that a tough fight because it is at where the Russian supply lines will be, you know, extended uh, in that area there more so than elsewhere. But of course, the Kiev regime's uh, supply lines will also be extremely, even more so extended there. And they'll have one quick shot and they've got to do it by surprise. And if it doesn't work, then that's it. Uh, so um, I, I, I'm pretty sure that Russia is prepared, but I'm sure that that is on the books and that is the plan. If they doesn't happen. It's because someone has shown some sense and said, well, obviously that's not going to work now, but it's still hanging out there as a possibility. So uh, I've heard people talk about Russia hitting dams further upstream and uh, reintroducing flow to, to the, the river and the reservoir. Is that, a, do you think that that's a possibility or, or not? Sure, I, I think it's a, it's actually when you, you think about it, that is one of the principal reasons why, like with the Nord Stream pipelines, that it makes absolutely no sense why Russia would blow up the dam. They had control of the dam. They could have, if they wanted to flood it, they could have just opened the sluice gates and poured water through. They had leverage, right? They had the possibility of doing that if the Kiev regime attempted a serious amphibious crossing of the Niper, which was always, you know, stupid, uh, suicidal. But if they had, they had that. Now they don't have that option, right? Uh, so um, uh, the, 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 an, another reason. Would Russia do that? If they believed the situation was dire enough, they would. But that would be a big dam. It would cause a lot of damage. And Russia would, I believe, only do that under the most extremist conditions. I believe that they probably have defensive plans in place to take care of it well short of resorting to that option. Again, something that's always on the table, but I think it would be a, a last resort. Yeah, and and what you're talking about regarding the nuclear power plant, I mean, they, they tried this in Syria, and actually when they were shelling it earlier, and you, you kind of... Uh, you're kind of hinting at this. They were actually pushing that narrative then that uh, yeah. Russia is the one shelling the, the nuclear power plant that they're holding yeah. and that some sort of international intervention was required. And, and so I guess that brings me to my last question. They're launching this offensive, ill-conceived, uh, 
does not have the elements required for it to to be to be successful. Even if it does reach the objectives, Ukrainian forces will be exhausted. They will not be able to hold them. Uh, so what comes next? Is NATO trying to angle uh, towards some sort of intervention, some sort of coalition of the willing? I saw people in the comment section asking about how how much longer is this going to go? And you've previously said years. I agree. I think it's going to be years. It's not going to be years the way it is right now. Yeah. But in one way or another, this is going to this is going to be a long fight. Yeah. And, and Russia, I believe, has the patience to do this, just like in Syria. What, what is your take on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the end of this, quote unquote, end, we've talked about this before, looks more like Syria. The U.S., NATO cannot be seen signing any type of surrender terms, right? Any, any type of diplomatic deal to end this conflict with Russia. They can't. They believe their hegemony is on the line. They will not do it. They believe that NATO would suffer irreparable damage and the U.S. reputation as the hegemon uh, did it. They will, you know, maybe some North Korean style ceasefire armistice at the end, more likely something that isn't even declared like Syria, where the extent is some type of deconfliction that just goes on forever uh, and creates another frozen, unfrozen conflict situation. That's the way this ends. They will not come to a diplomatic table. You will not see Zelensky sign any papers. You will not see uh, Biden and Putin in some grand deal working it out. You will not see European defection from, from Germany or France. or it, No, it's not going to happen. This is going to end in a undeclared frozen conflict, right, at some point. But Russia has every uh, reason uh, to continue this forever, right? If they say, when this is over, we'll continue what we're doing, the, the quote-unquote porcupine strategy, the, the same strategy that they have for Taiwan, because that's the only strategy they have, fill it full of weapons, right? Fill it, that's that's the, their, their thinking, right? That's the only strategy they have, whether it's Taiwan or Ukraine. Uh, we'll fill them full of more weapons till Russia can't touch them. Um, we'll bring them into the EU and we'll bring them into NATO after this conflict is over. Well, if you're sitting in the Kremlin, you say, well, then we don't end this, right? We continue forever, right? Until, you know, maybe 10 years down the line, we reach the Polish border if we have to, right? But that, that, that's it. It, it doesn't end because whatever we leave, Whenever this conflict ends, they then immediately, you know, double, you know, doing a, a, a dog pissing on its territory, double market and double down on using it as a battle platform, training up generations of Galician youth uh, to be, you know, uh, anti-Russian shock troops for NATO. Right. That 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 is what the, the, the future looks like. So you just don't stop. Maybe it goes down to a low level. Maybe there's periods of of lulls of frozen conflict or ceasefire but you never end it uh that's the only thing that makes security sense again until you reach the polish border and and if then and i I don't believe that russia would need a a million troops uh to, to 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 occupy kiev and west ukraine uh so um i i don't 
I don't think that's there yet. I, I think that this uh, does not end in some diplomatic grand bargain. No one, no one signs any uh, surrender terms. I think the conflict goes on. All right. They, you will, they will they continue reaching into pockets. We six months ago didn't think they have South Korea, Japan, now Israel, right? We will see the next army will be armed with Israeli tanks firing Japanese artillery shells. Uh, they will be F-16s with NATO mercenary pilots flying them. They will be Air Force, right, that is actively decommissioned so that they can then serve as volunteers for Ukraine. And then eventually, yeah, we will see uh, Polish and U.S. and British and possibly Baltic troops, whatever they're saying otherwise, they will be moving into West Ukraine under the guise of peacekeepers. That's that's the way it will be presented. They will not seek outright to challenge Russian forces because you, then the question is with what, right? The only question, the only thing then with what is to bring in NATO air power, right? And if you notice right now, they are doing the largest NATO air exercise that has ever been done over Eastern Europe, very pointedly directed all around Kaliningrad. Um, that is what is going on right now. And that is an obvious, considering it being done now and this scale and where it's being done, that is a message being sent, uh, a not very subtle message uh, to Russia. They are not going to back down. They will continue digging in whatever hole and whatever pocket they can uh, and, and like I said, we're now on Israeli tanks, Japanese artillery shells, and, and F-16s that will be flown by, by Western mercenary pilots. Yeah, and, and what people have to remember is that as this continues, NATO's military capabilities continuously degrade. They're not, they don't have the, it will be years before they even reach the levels that they need to sustain what's going on right now. Uh, there's also other clocks that are ticking, like de-dollarization, multipolarism, replacing uh, Western-led unipolarism. So there's all of these things taking place at the same time. Uh, so it's not it's not going to be indefinite in in terms of the the, the strengths on both sides. But I think I believe NATO will be growing weaker and weaker. We see this in Syria, actually. The position of U.S. troops in eastern Syria is being undermined right now. It's not sustainable, and I don't think what they're doing in Ukraine is sustainable. But I absolutely agree with everything you're saying about how they they will not they will not stop. And there's no you know, the European leadership is never going to defect and and come to a policy that actually serves their own people's this, best interests. This isn't the Europe of Chirac and Schroeder. This is no, this is, is not. the Europe of Burrell and Baerbach. Absolutely. So uh, I, I think we've. I think, well, I think you have done a very good job breaking this down. This is Ukraine's offensive as it enters the, its third week. You did an excellent job from top to bottom, left to right, uh, from what's happening on the ground all the way up to the geopolitical level, uh, breaking this down for my viewers. I want to thank you very much for taking time out of your day, Mark, uh, to join us. Uh, please tell everyone where they can find and follow your work. Um, yeah, um, so, uh, first of all, sign on to my Substack. Uh, I put almost everything there. It's for free. It is not monetized at any level, right? It will not be monetized. You can't get money to me. 
I have a Russian bank and a Regic credit credit card. I've been here for 20 years. I don't have any Western ones. So there's no way. So don't feel that, you know, you can't sign on to my sub stack because you, 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 you can't, uh, uh, you know, uh, financially contribute to me because I'm not taking your money anyway. Give it to Brian. Um, so, uh, but sign on to my sub stack because I put all of right now I'm doing 10 to 15 radio interviews, particularly for Sputnik a week at this point. I put, I try to put at least one a day, uh, generally, you know, uh, because if I, some of them are just really repetitive. Uh, so you don't want to hear the same thing, uh, four or five times a day. Uh, so, but I try to put, uh, you know, at least one, uh, you know, uh, there a day or so. Uh, you know, three or four a week, maybe. Uh, so, um, you'll see I am doing things every day, uh, uh, quite a lot. Um, I do have my YouTube channel, The Real Politic. Um, unfortunately, I have not been able to keep up with the editing with the amount of radio work I'm doing. It's very time consuming and I'm not very good at it. I'm, I'm learning. Uh, and I hope to get back to making, you know, the, the high production, you know, uh, relatively, uh, videos I was doing, uh, you know, at some point, uh, when, when I have more time, uh, but I will put what I can there. Um, my telegram channel is the best way to follow me and get everything as with Brian, because, uh, everything I get there. Also, I re, what is it? Re-telegram, repost everything that I see that I want to keep tabs on. <laughs> uh, so I use it as my own news feed as well. So you'll see uh, at least the English language stuff. I don't put the Russian and the Ukrainian stuff, language stuff there, but that I think, uh, you know, that I'm considering important. Uh, I know Brian often does the same thing. Uh, so there, and, and Twitter. I, I'm on Facebook, but no one, Facebook is so censored. No one pays any attention to Facebook anymore. So, uh, you know, that's that's where. Um, but, um, also while you're thinking, uh, I, I'm going to put all of the links to everything, uh, where you can find and follow Mark's work in the video description below. And also once the live stream is over, I will, uh, pin at the top of the comment section, uh, all of these links where you can find and follow his work. Those radio interviews are, are very good. I, I like listening to them. Uh, you, you, you post them on Substack. You also put the link to your Substack on Telegram. So I, I think people should, if you don't have Telegram, get Telegram. Uh, there, you know, c- compared to all of the Western platforms, you're not, you have no fear of being censored or, or wiped out from the platform. So people, people should go there. At least diversify if you have yeah. Twitter. Brian's also doing great interviews with the guys from the Critical Hour and and, and stuff as well. And and I wanted to say that. I occasionally get uh, comments out there like, well, Brian said this. <laughs> and um, uh, just so you guys know, we regularly communicate with each other during the week. We, we send each other tips and information. We ask each other questions. What do you think about this? And 95% of the time, we probably agree on just about everything for several years running now, right? We, we with a, f- yeah. a few tiny exceptions. Yeah. So, so, you know, don't, don't worry about that. We're, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're staying we're in touch and sharing yes. info. Yes. 
Uh, okay, thank, thank you, thank you, Mark. Again, uh, everything will be in the the video description and a po uh, pinned comment at the top of the comment section. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you, everyone who tuned in live or anyone who is watching this afterwards. Please like and share. Again, uh, any any questions about where you can find our work? It's all in the video description below. Uh, we'll have you back on real soon, Mark. I would like to get you back on at least at least once a month. These uh, all encompassing long form updates. These are, these are excellent. I hope everyone learned, learned something and enjoyed them. So I don't think so I, because I, I watch all your shows and I'm pretty much saying the exact same thing you do. So. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, okay. So everyone, thank you. And until next time, bye for now.